Thank you for downloading this podcast by Sheikh Ridwan Ibn Salim. For more podcasts, videos and articles, go to civilizations.org.uk. This is part one of our series of podcasts on eschatology, major signs before the Day of Judgment. The topic of this lecture is Introduction and Methodology. Inshallah, the eschatology the knowledge of the signs of the last day um, a very important part of the um, Islamic teaching that uh, it's important we I thought it's important for us to appreciate the historical context and the current uh, world global context to understand the information or the knowledge that is within our tradition. Why study Akhirah Zaman? Why study the signs of the last day? You will come across many people um, saying, oh, don't get, don't get involved in those things, Dajjal and these Yajuj and Majud and these things. Just focus on your ibadah or, or you know, there's, there's people will say, don't, 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 um, don't bother with that stuff, etc. Mainly because amongst, I'd say, most people, they can't make sense of that knowledge that is there. Yeah, it's very confusing. And that's why often people say, look, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't bother going down. I'm, I'm talking about here people of knowledge as well. Because um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information. And a lot of stuff, especially in the books of Hadith, uh, which can lead people to a lot of confusion. And I had the blessing of studying with certain uh, <coughs> scholars. Uh, first of all, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, may Allah protect him, who had a lot of insights into this field. And he's one of the leading uh, thinkers and he he actually made that you know one of his things he really specialized in as well um, so he focused on um, these things and la much later on i had the uh, uh, blessing of uh, coming across the teachings of sheikh imran hussein may allah protect him who also has focused on this branch of knowledge and uh, put a lot of uh, time, his time, and um, <coughs> thinking into it. So, th this course is really um, drawing from both of those leading scholars and adding a couple of uh, few insights or uh, result of my own research to that as well. But I'd say I'd say eighty percent, ninety percent is from those teachers. Now, I want to say a couple of words about uh, these scholars because uh, sometimes they can be controversial uh, people as well, and uh, a lot of criticism is directed towards them, uh, particularly Sheikh Imran. 
And what we have to understand, I want you all to reflect upon, is that this is the case with any original thinker within our tradition. And we don't have many original thinkers within our current uh, scholarly tradition. Uh, and th there's, there's many reasons for that. Part of them are just the gradual decline in the uh, level of scholarship over many years and even centuries now. Um, you're probably aware at one point in time the sort of, um, you know, people said, oh, the doors of Ishtihad were closed, you know, a few centuries ago. Then other scholars came and said, no, actually the doors of Ishtihad were never closed. And that's just a modernist uh, critique, which is, you know, but the fact is, uh, the doors of Ishtihad could never be closed because uh, technically you always can be a mushtahid, but the doors were jammed shut to be very difficult to open because the bar was set so high. And, and anyway, uh, we don't want to go into that a lot, but the, the thing to say is this, that the majority of our madrasas, you know, in the Muslim world have decayed over time, the level of scholarship has decayed over time. So we don't have um, great intellects uh, for, for various reasons. And where you do have uh, scholars that are of uh, intellectual caliber and they are uh, coming up with original thought, which is what is required in the modern age because of the challenges we face. The challenges that the Muslims face intellectually, culturally, through all of scientific advancements, technology, etc., requires uh, people of uh, brilliant thinking and intellect. When, when those uh, people will come with their... The whole point is of originality, you have to you have to be able to think outside the box, right? Immediately, that type of uh, thing will come across a lot of critique and criticism. Now, that's partly the nature of it, you know. When, a, when any scholar comes up with anything new, uh, other scholars will critique. Um, uh, and that can be a healthy thing, that can be a good, that is a good thing. Um, but it can sometimes turn into a, a over harsh, you know, and, and even lead to uh, accusations of uh, deviancy, sometimes even apostasy. <coughs> uh, this is nothing new. Think about our earliest and greatest scholars, the Imam Abu Hanifas, the Imam Shafi's, the Imam Ghazali's. These are people who uh, forged original uh, new things, you know, they were thinking outside the box. Imam Abu Hanifa is credited with actually being the founder of jurisprudence in a way, uh, fiqh. And he, you know, he came across a huge amount of criticism. Uh, you know, to the point where there's many, otherwise they're known as our great scholars of our tradition, but when they talk about Abu Hanifa, they're very, very harsh and critical and call him all sorts of things.
Yeah, insult, even insulting at times. Yeah, so Imam Shafi, another original thinker. Yeah? He came with the um, Asul. He's the first one to codify, and and he uh, originated a new science, Asul al-Fiqh. Yeah? Something totally different that hadn't been done before, and he was criticized. Imam al-Bukhari. Imam al-Bukhari, one of you know the greatest imams of this ummah, was driven out of his town by other scholars, by other scholars inciting the, the masses against him. He died on the road, you know. He died on a road in exile from his own hometown. Why? Because he had come up with a radically new thing, a new idea, that we need to have a collection of hadith which are sahih. That are, that, that are of the highest level of authenticity so that we can make these available for the, the normal Muslims and the scholars that are not ex experts in hadith you know? but it, this was considered by other scholars, his own peers, his own other hadith experts severely criticized him, he was accused at times of deviancy in Aqidah as well Imam al-Ghazali, the amazing work, Ihya' al-Umuddin, Imam al-Ghazali is considered by many to be uh, the great mujaddid of this ummah, that, that was the one who codified Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. During his own lifetime, the Ihya' al-Umuddin was burnt in the streets, in, in the Maghrib. That's how they considered it, how deviant it was. They didn't allow people to read, they said, you can't read this book. You know, it's, it's virtually apostasy. We, they were burning the book. So this is what I want to say about, especially uh, Sheikh Imran. You know, I've, I've read his stuff. I've sat with him. I've taken the time to analyze his arguments. You know, and what I will say to you is he's, he's a proper scholar. And he is coming up with original thinking. You know, something that has been lost in the madrasas. He had, uh, he's coming from a strand of uh, Islamic knowledge within the subcontinent that has almost been lost. Because the Dar al-Alooms of Dioband and the Brailvi madrasas, they, they've become the dominant threads that have come from India. Uh, but there were many other uh, sort of scholarly threads within that tradition that we have almost lost. Um, anyhow, so what I would say, the reason why I'm talking about this is because obviously a lot of this course will be building upon, you know, work from him and from Sheikh Hamza as I mentioned. Uh, but particularly with Sheikh Imran, we, uh, you, you probably know we invited him to Hounslow to Hamim for a couple of lectures. And uh, there was a storm of protest, yeah, storm of protest from our own community and from others uh, around the country. Um, scholars that I know, that we know, writing very uh, strong messages, you know, to us, saying, you know, why are you hosting this guy? He's this, that, the other. 
right? So because this was coming from uh, respected uh, colleagues and scholars, uh, we did take it seriously and we asked them, you know, what are your exact uh, criticisms, what are your precise ob objections to this man, you know? Um, and, and we looked at what they said in response and there were, I, I mean, you know, Sidi uh, Umair and Faisal, they were, no, they were there, we had a meeting, you know, I had a meeting with some of our own people, some of our leading students and we discussed and looked into those issues and there was, there was nothing, you know, there was nothing of substance. There's a lot of rumours, a lot of gossip, yeah, about, there's a lot of character assassination, which is wrong. And there are, you know, there are some uh, fatwas he has given or some ideas which do seem very strange to us, especially Western Muslims. And, you know, I, I'm, and like, I don't agree with everything that Sheikh Imran says as well. And I don't agree with all of his positions. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I don't agree doesn't mean that he doesn't have a, an argument that he can make based on evidence that he brings, you know. And if he's made some mistakes, that's absolutely fine with me. Because all of our greatest scholars made mistakes. Imam Shafi rahimullah, said, I revised my book 40 times and kept, him, kept making changes each time, kept finding mistakes and improving it each time. And after 40 times I said, you know, that's it, now it's up to Allah, only the book of Allah is perfect. And he published it. You know, every book, every scholar will make mistakes. Because only the Book of Allah is perfect. And only the Prophet ﷺ is perfect in every opinion or, or you know. So that's just, a, and especially those who are thinking outside of the box. They're bringing new, um, you know, new insights. They're trying to reflect upon the Quran and the Hadith and, and try to understand the, our situation today. Of course, they're going to be coming up with things and, and they're going to make mistakes as well. So this is the thing, you know, um, I just want hopefully brothers and sisters to understand. Um, and anyway, you know, we're not here to assess people's character, you know. We're here to benefit from their knowledge and look at their arguments. Yeah. I'm not here to, uh, that's, not, that's not our job. So we look at what he's teaching and we look at his arguments and we assess that. Yeah? And whatever we agree with, we can accept. And if we don't agree with some stuff, we say, respectfully, Sheikh, we don't agree with you on this. And I've said that to him, to his face. And he's absolutely fine with that. Because if you notice, every time he does a talk, he always says, look, this is my opinion. Don't, don't, don't believe this unless you're convinced. You know, so he's, when he's sitting in my house, Alhamdulillah, I came to my house once. I said to him, Sheikh, I, I, you know, respectfully, I disagree with you about X, Y, Z, you know, the, something about Ottomans or something like that. And uh, it may be that after a few years, I might go back to him and say, actually, Sheikh, I think you were right about that thing. Because I also am in a, a process of learning and, and, 
uh, growth. You know, that's happened to me many times. So it's about, you know, we have to keep our minds open, you know, in, especially in these challenging times we live in. We, we can't afford to just be uh, blind um, followers of texts that were written hundreds of years ago. We have to be people that respect those texts and learn from those texts. But then there's a, we have to move on, we have to move on. Uh, Sheikh Dr. Omar Abdullah said in one of his papers, the title of the paper was, Stop where they stopped, then proceed. Stop where they stop, then proceed though. We have to proceed. We, we learn our tradition, we study those great Imams, the works of the great Imams, and get those great insights, but they didn't have the challenges that we face today. Uh, they didn't see what we're seeing today. So they didn't ha have it, they didn't, you're not going to find that response there. You're going to find the tools. We're going to find the tools, but we need people capable of getting those tools and using those tools. And, uh, and I don't like saying this, but it, uh, it just because you know, of what's happening and these sort of criticisms of certain people, the fact and truth of it is, you know, 90% of people coming out of our madrasas don't know how to use the tools. They've been exposed to the tools, they may have tried to grasp the tools, but they haven't been able to grasp them fully and to be able to use them uh, because they're not easy. Yeah. So that's all, that's all you know, I want to say about that. Don't dismiss people, uh, don't, don't listen to character assassinations. Yeah? Just look at people's arguments. Sheikh Hamza said to us once when we were studying with him, you know, Take, take what's good from someone and leave what's not, you know, that's all we have to do. We're not here to analyze their personal lives or their character, you know. We should have enough knowledge to assess their arguments for the sake of what they're saying, you know. Um, anyway, so one of the points we want to make here is, um, as uh, people have said, you know, don't bother studying, don't bother talking about Dajjal and these things. I agree, we, it shouldn't be the only thing we uh, talk about, you know, uh, which is why this course is one, just one part of a wider thing, but, but it is also important. Uh, so the point I make here, you know, if it, if it wasn't important, why would the Prophet ﷺ have given us all these signs? You know, why would the books of Hadith be f have whole chapters full of these signs about the sign of the Day of Judgment? Why would the Quran contain direct uh, um, reference to signs that will come about if it was not important for us to know? Why would the Prophet have devoted time to that? Yeah, and ultimately, for us to respond to our current situation as Muslims, as an Ummah, we can't respond to our situation if we don't understand the situation we're in now. And this is what these um, signs help us to do. So in one hadith uh, related by Muslim and Abu Dawood, the Prophet ﷺ stood up one day to speak to us and told us everything that was going to happen until the hour and left nothing unsaid.
So the Day of Judgment, as you probably know, comes by different names within uh, the Quran. Sometimes it's called the hour, Asa'a. Asa'a literally means the hour. It's also called Yawm Al-Qiyamah, um, Yawm Al-Deen, the day of debts, the day when all debts are repaid, uh, and many other names. So this is literally the last day, um, meaning it's um, the end of time, literally the end of time. Time comes to an end, because time is made up of days, isn't it? Uh, and uh, we're going through the days, and then that will be the last day. Yeah? The time, Akhir zaman the end of time. You know? So time is like a string. You know, there's Awwal zaman when Allah created the universe. That's the beginnings of time. And then there's Akhir zaman when time is actually going to wrap up. Time itself is going to come to an end. Uh, so that's uh, quite, you know, quite phenomenal how when you start coming towards the end of time itself, you know, things start happening, you know. Uh, time starts speeding up is one of the things that are mentioned in the hadith many times. You know, to, and that sort of makes sense if you think about it as a, as a, as a length of, you know. Because when you start coming to the end of something, yeah, it starts quickening. So time actually starts speeding up. So the Prophet ﷺ told them everything that will happen from that day until the final day, the end of time. Some of the listeners learnt it by heart and some forgot it. These, those friends of mine learnt it. I do not remember it completely. But sometimes it springs to mind, just as one might remember and recognize face of a man with her. So what Hudayfa is saying is that, you know, we were given this lot of knowledge. I can't remember everything, but there's some things I remember. Others remember more than me. He may have just been being polite as well. Um, partly. Another similar narration where Imam Ahmad uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal has reported a similar, um, it may have been the same incident, we don't know, it may have been a different incident. In this case the Prophet ﷺ stood up after Asa prayer, he stood up and continued to talk until Maghrib, so a long period of time. He mentioned everything that was going to happen until the day of resurrection and left nothing unsaid. Some of us remembered, some of us forgot it. One of the things that he said was, O oh people, the world is full of attractive temptations. Allah has appointed you as vicegerents, Khalifa in this world, and he will see how you will act. So guard yourselves against the temptation of the world and of women. Towards the end of his speech, he said, the sun is about to set. And what remains of this world compared to what has passed is what remains of this day compared to what has passed. So in other words, the day of judgment is very close, and that was 1400 years ago. Now, uh, we're going to talk about a bit about methodology um, for when we're looking at um, this subject of Akhir zaman which is very important. And as I say, the vast majority, and I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, 
I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to be arrogant saying, oh yeah, I, I understand things, a lot of people don't. This is just um, a fact that, you know, these scholars that I, for whatever reason Allah uh, decreed for me to study with, were able to clarify these things. Yeah? But the vast majority of people, Muslims, are just very confused about these uh, things. Yeah. Um, and part of that is because there's no methodology. There is a, through a lack of knowledge, so people can't differentiate between different reports uh, that are mentioned in hadith, for example, strong hadith, weak hadith, you know, different sources. Um, so we have to have a very clear understanding of our methodology, and this is what's known also as epistemology. What is your source of knowledge? Epistemology is a study of the, your sources of knowledge. Now, our ultimate source of knowledge is the Quran. Yeah, there's, there's absolute, that is the absolute 100% uh, infallible source of knowledge. There's nothing else in any way comparable to the Quran. Uh, we don't consider our intellect to be above the Quran. You know, if our intellect or reason is telling us something and the Quran is telling us something, we will take the Quran. The Quran is the ultimate. Yeah. So, Western rationalist philosophers, they put reason or aql as the ultimate source of knowledge. They've abandoned that now, but they used to. Um, uh, for us, we have the Quran. And then after the Quran, we go to the hadith which are mutawatir. Hadith which are mutawatir. So these are hadith that have been narrated by so many Sahaba and by so many people from each generation after the Sahaba that we cannot even have a tiny amount of doubt. In other words, we have absolute certainty, as strong as the certainty that we have in the Quran. With one slight difference. Yeah, with one slight difference, which we'll come to later, which is that the wording of hadith are not infallible. The wording of hadith are not hundred percent, because the wording of hadith are mainly done by meaning by the Sahaba, not memorized from the Prophet The Sahaba, most hadith are coming through meaning. They heard or they witnessed something from the Prophet and then they related it, but not necessarily in the exact words of the Prophet uh, This is something a lot of people don't realize, it's a fact that all scholars of, I mean all students of knowledge know when they study hadith sciences. There's only few hadith, I don't know the percentage, maybe 5% or 10% or less, which are where the, the Sahabi have actually memorized the words of the Prophet and the scholars have got a whole uh, methodology how to identify the hadith which are memorized and the hadith which are by meaning. Yeah, there are certain, oh, the, the only way sometimes you can be sure is sometimes a Sahabi will actually say, I memorized this from the Prophet You know, like the Dua al-Istikhara is a good example. Dua al-Istikhara, the Sahabi, some of the Sahabi that narrated actually said the Prophet taught us this, like uh, he made us learn it, memorize it from him.
yeah, uh, and so on. So the thing with mutawatir, we can be a hundred percent sure of their authenticity, but the difference with the Quran is the Quran is we can also be sure of the actual wording. The wording is the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And now with the hadith mutawatir, there are two types. Uh, mutawatir by transmission are not that many. This means that they have been narrated by so many Sahaba and then so many people in each generation, the same hadith that, you know, there's no doubt in it. The same hadith by over 10 Sahaba, let's say. Mutawatir by meaning is more, there's more of that and in some ways it's more useful to us in this context as well. So it's important to understand what we mean by mutawatir by meaning. Mutawatir by meaning is, a good example is the thing about China. Yeah? How many of us have been to China? Yeah, not maybe one or two of us. Or no. do you believe? Do you have a hundred percent certainty that China exists? Yes. Well. <laughs> you do, right? I mean, as much as you have certainty of anything, you believe that China exists. Yeah. So you haven't heard a Mutawatir report about China, like you know. You haven't heard, um, you know, 20 people narrating the same incident that happened to them in China, have you? But what you have heard is thousands of people talking about China in different contexts, about different things about China, right? So one person might have said, I went to China. Another person, you might have heard from a different person uh, about China, something else about China. China is a communist country. So these are all different hadith about China. Yeah. These are all you've heard thousands of different hadith about China, but the the thing they have in common is China. So even though one of those reports is not mutawatir, you know. So if Khayyam came to me and said to me, "Yeah, I, I did go to China. I can tell you definitely, I've been to China." And I said, well, "Okay, yeah, but you're one person. Right? He's one person. I I believe him." I believe he's trustworthy, he's not mad, he's, uh, you know, he's, um, he's got a good memory, he's not, I don't think he's hallucinating or anything. So I believe him, I'm, I, I have 99.9% .9 certainty that he is telling the truth. So that hadith is sahih. That hadith is sahih, but it's not mutawatir. Ultimately, that's what the scholar said, you know. Even though that guy is completely reliable, you, you never know, you know, you might have taken a magic mushroom or something by mistake or maybe something's come over him, he's, he's, you know, he just wants to mislead you. We don't know, we can't be... So that's... The only way that could become mutawatir is if 20 of you went with Khayyam to China and you all came back and said, yes, we all just went to China. Then I'd say, man, that, that's mutawatir, yeah. So, but that would be mutawatir by transmission, you're all talking about the same thing. Mutawatir by meaning, you hear about the same, so, for example, say, let's say Dajjal. I'm just saying by way of example, 
There may not be any one single hadith which is mutawatir by transmission. There is sahih, definitely. But Dajjal is mentioned in so many different contexts and by so many Sahaba, you know, going into thousands, let's say, in every generation, that it becomes mutawatir by meaning. Because it's common to all of these different reports. You know, they're all talking about Dajjal. Therefore, we can be 100% sure that the Dajjal is true. And it's come from the Prophet Yeah, so that's what we call mutawatir by meaning. And then we go to Sahih. So this is where you have, you know, a reliable narration, yes. So then we go to the Sahih. Now these are hadiths which are reliable. Yeah, they've come from reliable people, um, absolutely trustworthy people. And we have various collections, as we said, of Sahih. And then you have Sahih hadith scattered in other collections as well, that may not necessarily be in Bukhari or Muslim. The importance of Bukhari and Muslim, first let's go to Bukhari. The importance of Imam al-Bukhari is that by consensus of all the later scholars and his peers, his is still the book that is the, he, he put the most rigorous conditions to Sahih. Yeah? So he would not put a hadith in his book unless it reached the most rigorous standard of um, analysis. The difference with Bukhari, he, 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 he had other, many other hadiths as well, but he, to, to put into his Sahih, he only put the ones that met the highest level of uh, rigorousness. I haven't got time to go into the methodology now, because obviously that will be deviating too much. But uh, Muslim is considered to be the second most uh, careful. Uh, and then other books like Abu Dawood and others. Uh, have a mixture. They, uh, Bukhari and Muslim generally are considered to have only Sahih in them. A few hadith in each book are debated about whether they reach the level of Sahih or not. But most, I mean, the general general scholars uh, would accept that both books are all of the hadith in both books are Sahih. Um, now, even within those books, uh, it must, you must remember that Imam al-Bukhari, for example, within his own book, he would have a different threshold, depending on what topic he's talking about. Uh, so when he's doing, when, he's, when you're looking at chapters that are to do with law, fiqh, he will have a higher threshold. And when you're talking about other, and this was a general rule amongst ulama from early on, other topics, let's say for example like seerah, they would be less strict on the um, uh, authentication. Still, he was very, very high bar anyway. I'm not saying, you know, it's, the, it's definitely not getting into a lower category. Still, still the strongest category of sahih, but he'd be slightly less strict. 
in uh, those areas because for obvious reasons when you're talking about law you're talking about halal and haram and that's a very very serious matter you know to tell someone something is halal or haram that's a very serious matter Allah warns against it severely in the Quran you know who are you to make something haram what he hasn't made haram or who are you to make something halal that he hasn't made halal so the scholars they don't mess with that But when you're talking about seerah or stories of prophets or things like that, you can slightly relax the criteria because it's not going to impact on people's halal and haram uh, thing, yeah? Um, and then, then uh, we get on to the weaker hadith, right? So this is then a huge number of hadith. In Bukhari, we have about eight to nine thousand hadith but there's a lot of repetitions the same hadith through different chains and, and he's done that purposely because every time he brings the same hadith by a different chain he's showing you that how strong that hadith is that I don't have it only by one chain I've got it by many different chains of narrators many different of my teachers anyway so um, if you if you knock out all the repetitions you're only talking less than two thousand around 2,000 hadith that he considered to be of that level of seha. Um, but then when you go into the weaker hadith, then you're talking about tens of thousands. So Musnad Ahmad ibn Hanbal, for example, has about 40,000 hadith. Uh, altogether, there's probably about 100,000, 200,000 hadith out there in one place or another. I'm talking about just even, you know, just a very, even with no, no chain of narration, things like that. Um, so within the weak hadith, there's many, many different subgradings. Uh, some can be much weaker, some can be stronger than others, and so on. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of the hadith about uh, the signs of the last day are from the category of weak hadith. So we have to think long and hard, how, what do we do with the weak hadith, you know? What do we do? How are we going to take these? And then, you may have other reports that are not hadith, the Sahaba and early scholars may have mentioned things, yeah? And finally, we have information that has come from the people of the book, the Jews and the Christians. These sources were accepted by Muslim scholars. Some uh, rejected them completely, but most of them accepted them to start to the point where they're like they're like very weak hadith, or they're like uh, you know they're they're basically they 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 reports. We don't know how authentic they are. They may or may not be because they don't really have isnad. You know they don't uh, they haven't preserved. The transmission um, but on the other hand um, they are people of the book which we know are uh, true revelations I would like to add a point here which is something I've reflected on myself in the past and we'll come back to that in later class as well 
Um, because when you look at the Bible, just look at the Bible, the Old Testament, for example. The Old Testament is also known as the Torah. So it's the book of the Jews, but the Christians have taken that and then they've added a New Testament, which is about Jesus and everything. So the Old Testament or the Torah, if you look at the stories of the prophets in there, and if you compare that to the stories of the same prophets in the Quran, it's a, it's a study that people can do. I haven't done it formally, but I've just, you know, just from my own knowledge of reading those stories and reading from the Quran, you can see actually they're, they're very similar. I would, you, I would say almost 80 to 90 percent. There's an 80 to 90 percent correspondence there. Now that's quite in, in, important and interesting because it means that that has been successfully preserved. That's quite phenomenal because in the Torah, the Old Testament, you're going back a thousands of years. I mean, you're going back about probably 2,000 years before the Prophet <coughs> um, Or maybe a thousand at least, yeah? Thousand, thousand five hundred, I don't know. Prophet Isa is 600 years before the Prophet Sallallahu So, this is uh, quite an achievement that the Jews, they kept this book, you know, and it's, it's been preserved to that degree of accuracy. Now, we know they've made lots of changes and everything because that was the thing they did, you know, and they hid certain parts from the people that they knew about and so on. Uh, but the fact that that is... The Quran is a testif testifying that they have preserved a lot of uh, the true teachings, I mean the true stories are there, you know. So for that reason I think it is of interest, you know, the Torah, the Old Testament is of interest uh, to us in this field of eschatology. Uh, but also always to be remembered uh, that there's fundamentally going to be unreliability in some way like the weaker hadith as well. When we look at the weak hadith we have to always keep in mind there's unreliability there. Right. Uh, just uh, the last point about the sahih. Remember we said the sahaba are narrating things by meaning. Right? So they've heard it from the Prophet and they're narrating my meaning. So the, the, the issue then, with especially with this um, study of Akhirah Zaman, the, the signs of the end of time, the Prophet when he was telling about these things that will happen, he was talking about things that was completely outside their frame of reference. Right? Think about it, the sort of technology, the world we live in today. It's completely, for, for, for people living more than 200 years ago, completely out of, uh, way out there, you know, way, way out there. I remember even, you know, when we were children, we were watching uh, things like Star Trek, and they're having mobile communicators, and we're thinking, wow, that's, imagine in the future we could have, like, mobile communicators, you know, you just flip it open, and you can talk to someone miles away. It seemed like so futuristic. And uh, now we just do it without thinking twice. You know? Just flip it open. And so this is way, way out there, you know, the way, the way uh, these things are just 
I mean, people in the past used to have magic, you know. This has gone way beyond, way beyond the magic. Um, so things like aeroplanes, you know, these things that... So, so when the Prophet is speaking to Sahaba, how is he going to explain these things to them? You know what I mean? So when the Sahaba have heard this as well, how are they going to relay it? There's going to be... We have to analyse the text really carefully. And this is where I, you know, I was talking about earlier, about the sort of blind, sort of taqlid culture of the madrasas now. We, we have to analyse these texts with more of an um, open mind. Yeah? We can't get bogged down by uh, the exact wording sometimes as well. Because first of all, Sahaba are narrating by meaning. They're not using the exact wording of the Prophet If they were, there wouldn't be a problem. So when, when the Prophet is describing something to them that is outside of their frame of reference, and then they're relating it, they're going to, you know, how are they going to relate that? They, so there's a natural psychological tendency that human beings have is to, when you receive something that is outside of your frame of reference, you will then try to digest that somehow to put it within your frame of reference. You know? You will do that automatically without thinking, without consciously doing that, you will do that. You know? So those are the sort of things we have to bear in mind here. Uh, and so one of the criteria that the Hadith scholars have is that the longer the hadith is, the more likely it's meant the Sahaba has done it by meaning, not by memorization. And if you look at most of the hadith about the signs of the last day, they're very long hadith. Yeah, they, they tend to be long hadith. So we're pretty certain that these were narrated by meaning, not by memorizing. Like, you remember the hadith we said before, the Prophet stood for hours telling them so much things. They can't memorize all of that. They're just trying to remember whatever they can. Yeah? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more content like this, go to civilizations.org.uk.